Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. In many previous episodes, I've talked about energy issues in Pakistan, what's going on around the world in terms of innovation. And today we're going to dive deep into a subtopic of that, which is solar power and off-grid power. And to talk with this, with this about, uh, to me about this, I have Shazia Khan. Shazia Khan is CEO of Eco Energy. She's advised the World Bank. She's advised the National Finance Development Corporation in Pakistan and really someone who's on a mission to eliminate the grid in Pakistan and make clean energy a reality. So Shazia, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you so much for having me, Ozer. I want to start with uh, you telling us a bit about Eco Energy and how did this organization come about and what is it doing in Pakistan? What's the scale that it has achieved? And then we can jump into some of the big picture issues on energy, which both of us are interested in, as are many listeners in terms of Pakistan's energy independence. So let's first start with uh, hearing a bit about eco-energy and what's it, what it's up to in Pakistan. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. So uh, eco-energy is a company started by myself and my co-founder. He's actually an Australian by the name of Jeremy Higgs, but um, he's a, now a permanent resident of Pakistan and has been living there for 12 years. And uh, we are on a mission and our mission is to eradicate the grid in Pakistan. The reason why is because it doesn't work. As you know, there's 50 million people that are off grid, 150 million more people who don't have reliable electricity. And despite the fact that the electricity isn't reliable, the bills that they pay are through the roof. And um, this is not necessary. And so we really view this as an opportunity for um, Pakistan to get ahead of even some developed countries in terms of adopting solar, but it's really going to take um, a radical push. Uh, and, and solar has come in one form in Pakistan, but we really don't believe that it's come in its um, purest form and that it, that it can be implemented in a much more powerful way and, and scaled up much more quickly than it has been already. Um, so I was going to just ask, I saw from your website and sp speaking with you before that a lot of your work is in rural Pakistan. So what is it like doing work in rural Pakistan? What are the needs and what have you seen as the opportunities of powering a solar revolution starting with rural Pakistan? Because often when we talk about energy in Pakistan, people think about industrial estates and large cities and the problems that they have. And they often miss that the issue is very severe in rural Pakistan are actually very different in terms of what it looks like. So help us understand a bit about, you know, your work in rural Pakistan and what, what it has been like. Well, um, the origins of Eco Energy is that uh, we started doing small scale solar solutions for off-grid communities in Pakistan. But what we realized quite quickly was that there's a massive need across the country. This is not uh, a problem just for low income rural people in Pakistan. This is a problem for everybody in Pakistan. Everybody in Pakistan has an energy problem, no matter what economic strata of society you come from. And so there needs to be not just one small or fragmented attempt by a, an NGO or by one provincial government. There needs to be some comprehensive, commercially viable uh, market-based mechanism to address this need. It, it's very difficult for the government to address it, and we can get into that um, a little bit more later, but uh, this is something that can be addressed by technology that already exists. So when we started in the rural areas and begun to understand that um, 
people were coming up to us and saying, well, do you have anything for me? I'm not maybe uh, the lowest of the low income, but uh, I'm a middle-class person and I have a factory that I can't run. I have a flour mill um, that stops and requires me to reset all of the, the, the machinery. Um, I have a factory in Sialkot. I am a residential um, professional in, uh, in Karachi. Do you have a system for me? And uh, over time, we, we realized that uh, low-income people in rural areas do need perhaps a government-subsidized solution, and that can be a solar solution. But everybody else also needs a solution and that can also be a solar solution particularly since the cost of solar has come down 90 percent over the last decade so now this is a viable option for everybody in between there's one or two companies that are servicing the uber wealthy the one percent in pakistan they're targeting this class uh, with a product and i'm happy that they do have an offering and that there's a solution but what about everybody else and that's really uh, the pivot that EcoEnergy made um, uh, a couple of years ago, is that we started in the rural areas with low-end, you know, with, with, uh, low small-scale solar solutions, and then we started doing commercial and industrial solutions in the rural areas, factories, farms, um, schools, hospitals, things like that. And then we've just made a move into Karachi, Lahore, and Islamabad within the last year. And that's gone very well because, um, as I've said, there is a dire need for reliable energy. I mean, how can you, how can you work if your laptop is going to conk out in the middle of a business meeting, or uh, you know, if your if your factory is going to give out at any hour of the day, every single day? Imagine how much is being lost uh, in terms of productivity. These people are not able to contribute to the local economy, to the national economy. Um, you already know, Ozair, better than anyone uh, from, your, from your work that the losses that we have with the grid in Pakistan amount to 7% of the GDP of the country. Billions of dollars a year, you know? Billions of rupees a year are being lost because um, of the inefficiencies in the grid. And a solution does exist. Now, the, the trouble is, is that uh, the solar that's that's here now is very different than the solar that we had 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the offering that we had was uh, one where we were educating consumers about what solar was, and it was pretty expensive. So it really needed to be subsidized or needed to be financed by us. Um, but now the cost has come down so much with China next door, the markets are flooded with products. So now we have a different problem. 10 years later, our offering is different because every single market in Pakistan has a dusty shop bursting with solar and other electronics, and it's difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff. You don't know what's what, there's no quality control, and so you just have tons and tons of products and you don't know how to navigate them. And then on top of that, if you can somehow cobble together a system for yourself, for your home, uh, by trusting the guy who's hopefully not trying to upsell you in the shop, um, then the problem is who's going to install it? You know, some some random guy down the street, maybe somebody you know who's done it for somebody else, but it's a very big risk. So the problem now is, is that a lot of people in Pakistan have thought about solar, but it's a very risky proposition because 
you don't know the proper sizing, you don't maybe understand what your load is, you don't understand, um, you don't understand how much power you need, you don't understand what, what type of system, what are the highest quality products, but are giving you the best value. You don't want to overspend on an over-engineered product, right? And then on top of that, you have to find somebody to do the installation. And then if it doesn't work, you hope that you can bring it, what are you gonna do? Uninstall it from your house, bring it back, hope you don't get electrocuted. And, uh, and then, you know, there's typically not always warranties available or any after sales service. So the big pivot that EcoEnergy has made is that we now have um, a platform called SAMHSA Web. You can either call us or you can go directly online and we will help you to navigate this world to make your transition to solar hassle-free and risk-free. We will configure a solution for you quickly over the phone. This can take 20 minutes or online. You just need a couple of pieces of information. You need your current electricity bill. Um, we need to understand the square footage of your house and we need to understand what appliances you want to power. And then we need to understand sort of, you know, what your day-to-day -day energy needs are. Then once we configure the solution for you, we'll give you a bunch of options. We're brand agnostic, we're product agnostic. We're just going to give you the best options available in the market for your budget. And then we will schedule an installation for you and we will come and do the installation within two weeks. This is a godsend for people. Typically it takes 123 days to get a power connection. Mm. Um, even uh, some of the, the best known solar companies in Pakistan take up to six weeks to come and do an installation. So we can do an installation for you within two weeks, two, two weeks with a certified professional installer that's in-house from our company. And then we'll provide you with a warranty and seven days a week after sales service. So we have um, customer service representatives, seven days a week, 14 hours a day. So we really stand behind our word because we want there to be a rapid and widespread adoption and acceleration of solar in the country. The technology is there. The need is there. The demand is there. We were just waiting for it to become affordable. And now it is. So, yeah. Question. Yeah, I know you mentioned um, that cost has come dramatically down and, you know, it happened. It's happened on large projects as well. I was looking at some recent bids in India for large uh, solar infrastructure and came out to be about two and a half, two cents a kilowatt hour. Um, what does solar costs, what do solar costs look like in Pakistan? Like how much if you're like a middle class person in, in a city like Karachi, like how much would it cost for you to have the solar option where you're not relying on K-Electric's pretty shoddy infrastructure to power your home and talking about your point about how do you work and when your laptop and internet goes out, I've had the same issue, right? Like recording these conversations with folks in Karachi in particular, um, that their power will go out and we have to wait 15, 20 minutes for yeah. the router to come back up and everything else to be figured out. And so, you know, for, from a cost perspective, like what does the math look like uh, in ballpark figures for someone who is interested in solar, but still thinks that it is as expensive as, as it was 10 years ago? Okay, so I would say that um, a great majority of our customers can recover their investment probably in about 14 months. Sometimes it can take up to two years, but then after that, the fuel cost is free, right? It's the sun. So you have perhaps 
an upfront investment that can be brought down. We can do financing for you. There's a lot of banks now that are offering financing for solar. JS Bank is one of them, for instance. Um, if you need monthly payments that are analogous to what you're paying right now for your electricity bill. But if you can put together the money and get one of these systems, you'll recover your investment in under two years. And then after that, you know, you're bringing your electricity bill down to zero. You can, you can either use this to supplement your grid electricity and you can feed your, the power that you generate back into the grid and they're not going to cut you a check like they might do in the U.S. Power company, K-Electric is not going to cut you a check. But what they will have to do is keep on minusing the amount from your... I, I was going to say, like, hopefully they'll minus the amount and not over continue to overbill you for being like, we're allowing you to have solar on your home. Yeah. Here's, here's an extra 100 rupees a unit you need to pay us. But yeah, right. that, that's so. what we're shooting for is to bring your electricity bill down to zero. So yes, there is a little bit of a cost for that, for installing the solar system. Um, but then after that, I mean, you're generating your own power. What like... What a great um, release to be able to unshackle yourself from the from the burdens and and be independent from um, from the grid. You can have your your solar system kick in, but all, all, you know what we're looking for down the line is for people to become completely independent of the grid, which will probably allow the government to breathe a sigh of relief too, because I don't think that they have any interest in running something that's so ineffective that's you know represents such great losses. To the you know to the national economy um the fact of the matter is is it's just it's an antiquated system and and switching to solar actually makes a lot more sense in a country like pakistan than it does in other developed countries because those places have to retrofit those countries have to um come up with a way to you know, effectively uproot a system that's in place and, and, and quite frankly is relatively affordable and quite reliable, right? But in a country like Pakistan, this is a really great opportunity for Pakistanis to not build back better, build from scratch something better and leave behind what isn't working. So I think that, um, I think the problem that's happened is that, um, Solar has left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because um, because the price came down so quickly, the market got flooded with poor quality products, and there was a lot of iffy people that didn't maybe know what they were doing, doing installations, who didn't understand sizing and load, um, and so people got burned. Uh, and then we've had some very high-profile projects like the, the Kaidiazum Solar Park. Um, this is a problem not of the technology itself, but this is the problem of people not being able to look at uh, things in a new way. The way that energy access unfolded in the West was that um, you had these huge power plants, government subsidized, government subsidized grid extension. And that was a long time ago. The fact of the matter is, is that that emerging markets like Pakistan, we don't have to do it in the same way. We don't have to do it in the same way because we have better technology. A lot of times people say, well, you know, solar's really cute, but you really need a big power plant 
off-grid won't work, distributed solar won't work, you really need something big. To me, that's akin to somebody saying, your, your mobile phone is really cute, but you should really wait for the infrastructure for a landline to be built to your house because that's the way that things are done. No, the, the infrastructure reason, for, you know, for uh, the national power grid, they put up a huge plant, didn't care about who were the people that were going to use it, what they could actually afford and what they actually needed and what they actually wanted. They just built this huge, very expensive plant and then hoped that people could pay for it and cover the cost. That's exactly the problem that we got. That, that's the same problem that we had in the first place. That's the problem with the national grid, right? You build something that may or may not work. It's totally over-engineered. It's very expensive. It's not work. You, you, you haven't built it with the people who are going to use it in mind. You have to build something with the user in mind. It has to be affordable for them. And they only need to pay for what they're using. They shouldn't be paying for the engineering. Yeah, and I think um, just, you know, I, I sometimes chuckle because you hear every few months reports come out from NEPRA, the power regulator in Pakistan, about how many billions of dollars are needed to upgrade the grid infrastructure in Pakistan. And I had Jamie Arbib on, on our show. He's a futurist, doesn't know anything about Pakistan, but they've writ he's written, co-authored a fantastic book on rethinking humanity and talking about what's coming in the future. And so I asked him, I was like, what's your advice to... Uh, countries like Pakistan who don't have solid investments in grid infrastructure but need to power their country to go forward. And he was like, my advice would be maintain what you have. Don't invest in, in building something new because that's going to be irrelevant in the next 10, 15 years. And in fact, you should be using that money to invest in the new technologies coming in off-grid solar, battery technology, wind power, anything that takes you to a distributed and clean energy model is going to yield far more returns long-term and in the short-term from a cost perspective than investing in this base load capacity with, with large uh, high-tension uh, energy electricity infrastructure lines. Um, and so I was just curious, I'm guessing you agree with that perspective as well, but, uh, and if you do, I was just wanted to know from your work in Pakistan, like, what's holding the policymaking community or the energy community back in terms of having a more future-oriented approach when it comes to planning for Pakistan's energy security? You know, um, actually, I do want to give, well, that's an excellent question. And I want to give credit where credit is due. The country needs to scale up um, solar. It's made tiny, tiny inroads, right? It's done some projects here and there. Right now, actually, we're working on a great project with the World Bank and the government of SIN, the SIN Solar Energy Project. Um, but I want you to understand the scale. I, in, in February, the, the um, president of Kenya announced that they were doing a project with the World Bank for off-grid electrification using solar, and they committed collectively $15 billion to upgrade, uh, you know, to, to create connections using solar for 1.9 million people. Okay, this is a population of 50 million, by the way, to our 200 million. Mm -hmm. We committed, SIND and Pakistan committed $100 million. Wow. 30 million is earmarked for off-grid solar. So, I mean, I'm just talking about the scale. Are you going to solve this problem or are you just going to a drop in the bucket and we want to say that we did this. We want to say that we did this. And I'm not, and, and I don't mean to diminish 
um, that program at all. In fact, I think that for, for what it is, it's quite progressive. Um, there is a global industry trade association dedicated to off-grid solar, of which we've been active members for many, many years. And um, there were, uh, when, the, the, when the president of Kenya made this announcement about his commitment to, to off-grid solar, um, there was a lot of African leaders there. Kenya has really been a leader in this space in off-grid electrification and, and getting the government's backing. Um, and, and the only other country outside of Africa that sent a delegation actually was Pakistan. And they were there, they were listening, they were learning, and they were getting ready to promote their own program. So I think the fact that they've done it at all, I mean, we've been working in Sindh for uh, like seven years, and we've been pushing this for a very long time. Um, I'm really excited and happy that it's happening at whatever scale it's happening at. But I just think that it could be ramped up, it could be scaled up, and that's when we're, where we're going to, to receive to see results much more quickly. But you know, the government's doing what it can. The government is a, is a huge non-monolithic body. It's very difficult to get things done quickly, even when there is will from good people. And there are good people working in the government that are trying to get things done, that are progressive, but it's just, it's a behemoth. It's very, very difficult to move policy. So um, people don't have to wait for the government. People can adopt solar on an individual basis if and when it makes economic sense for them. And that's what we're working to do to make sure that it makes economic sense for people and to de-risk the situation and to make it as hassle-free as possible. But we would love to be able to continue to work with the government and the World Bank and do a much larger scale projects. So I want to stick on, on this point. So I was just curious about you know, what's your wish list? If you were to have a wish list of things the government could do, like in the near term, it is a behemoth, things move slowly, but what are two or three things that maybe it can do? I'm thinking about like, I live here in DC, right? I can go on the DC solar map website and see what the load is and look at the GIS map, put in my address and it can tell me, well, based on the sun, here's what's optimal for you. And here's what people around you have put in. Like, is it something like this? What are like short term, you know, low hanging fruit that the government uh, can provide to the people to, again, at the individual level, reduce the barriers uh, to adopting solar so that, you know, we're not waiting for this cash 22 well, when the government moves, everyone else is going to move situation. Well, this is um, this is an excellent question. There are lots of things that they can do. Scaling up these programs is one, not creating so many regulatory hurdles for private sector companies like us is another, and not only us, but for instance, we have uh, an energy sharing platform that we have in development right now. It's a peer-to-peer -peer energy sharing platform. We call it Dosti. And basically what it allows us to do is if we go anywhere, say we go um, into a village or we go into uh, a housing development, or we go into, um, you know, a medium-sized town, anywhere we go, say there's 100 people there, and 30 people have um, an eco-energy solar home system, or any brand solar home system, and 70 people do not. Well, we can connect all of them, throw meters in there, it's relatively inexpensive, wire them all together, and then give the person that has a solar home system a way to monetize their asset. They can now, at the touch of a button, Somebody who has a meter in their home 
can order power on demand. I want to watch a cricket match for three hours. I don't have a solar home system on my house. Uh, I have an Istity business. I want to run this for three hours. I have like what, whatever it is, I can order power on demand and I can get it from somebody else on this network. There's batteries on one end. There's hardware and software um, that's been laid out. The software enables everybody to connect and for you to place order and for you to do um, sharing. So the government doesn't have to be responsible. The government doesn't have to be the operator. The government can just enable an independent operator, somebody that has a solar home system, no matter the size, to sell their excess energy to other people on the microgrid. And this can happen in a village. This can happen in an apartment building. This can happen in a gated community. But the government just has to not create regulatory hurdles and stop people from selling power to one selling and buying power to one another. This is a peer this is a, a peer-to-peer energy sharing platform. If they allow and in fact encourage projects like this to take place, we've developed this um, this technology in conjunction with Lums University. There was a team of electrical engineering professors who came to us and said that we want to commercialize this. We have a customer base of 25,000 people over the last several years. Now, through this World Bank program, we're hoping to reach 200,000 people. And independently, we've been growing um, over 400% year over year. So we will have a larger and larger and larger and larger base of customers from, you know, who can sell their excess power to other people and then indeed you know, have a way to monetize that asset. The government can encourage programs like this. The government can support the private sector to come in and supplement and give people power where they're unable to. They just, they can't have it both ways. They can't not provide people with power and then also get in the way of people that are trying to provide power. In fact, that what you're describing essentially like the Airbnb of energy sharing is, yeah. is, is great for the government of Pakistan because it deals with the whole political economy issue and it is a political economy issue that a lot of people don't understand that drives circular debt, right? Where people don't pay, exactly. including the government, don't pay their bills on time. And so everyone else who's paying over time and the taxpayer has to rack up, up debt with more. interest. The, ends the up paying people more. that are paying end up paying more. And it's really unfair. This is a much more equitable system. So this, you know, this energy sharing platform that we've developed, it's in service of our larger mission, which is, I've been working on energy access issues and specifically focused on Pakistan for 19 years. And I've been racking my brain. I didn't start out promoting solar. I just wanted to understand what the problem was, what the energy access problem was, and look at every possible solution. Well, over the last decade, like I said, the cost of solar has come down so much that we don't need a government subsidy for people to be able to afford this. You know, maybe just some very low income people, but everybody else, 85% of the population can afford this. And, you know, for the people that can't, we're still trying to figure out a way to make power affordable for everyone, to make clean power affordable for everyone. And Dosi Project, this peer-to-peer energy sharing platform is the way that we're going to do it. Everything that we do is in service of this larger goal. How do we get everybody in Pakistan electrified? And can we do it using solar? Because this technology is available. You know, it's available and it's the future. So why not get on board now?
you know and i think and 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 to those who are listening and and may think well you know you're being ambitious in terms of how pakistanis can scale up and what what capacity they have and i always try to remind at least my friends i'm like if you don't have to go too far back into the past to see the cng policy under general musharraf i literally it was a flawed policy but a uh, majority of vehicles in a significant amount of vehicles in pakistan's electric uh, vehicle fleet were converted to cng and literally we pakistan ended up using a sui gas in traffic jams that's how i joke about it now right that but when that decision was made people bought cng conversion kits people bought uh, and converted petrol stations into cng pumps the state laid down the infrastructure for the gas pipelines to get the gas to all these stations and even to this day the cng lobby is very very strong so you know it, it, it that type of energy decision has been made in the past and and looking for you're absolutely right and looking towards the future i mean the government does have many progressive um elements they are parts of it are forward looking for instance pakistan has you know 210 million people right two thirds of the population is under 35 the needs the demand for energy is going to continue to grow pakistan is slated to have a 300% increase in its carbon emissions over the next 15 years because all of these people are drivers they're going to be out there they're going to be on the road so the government has you know begun to look at electric vehicles right what kinds of um incentives can we be, uh, bring to people how can we encourage uh, electric vehicles to come to pakistan i mean this is something that has to be done and in fact that's the next major pivot that we're going well i wouldn't say pivot but that's the next um really exciting development that we're looking forward to is how can now we take these we've been electrifying factories ironically we've been electrifying a lot of uh gas stations like petrol stations mm. um we've been electrifying uh shopping malls and you know and farms and all of these people that we're putting this rooftop solar on we're going to be able to soon uh you know on top of office buildings um on top of car parks be able to put up solar so we want to do electric vehicle charging stations because once once people understand and make this transition to electric vehicles once the government makes it cheap enough for people to start importing them and once they understand what a savings it is i mean i have a tesla and it's awesome there's no maintenance there's no oil change there's no like it's maintenance free virtually but the only the, you know when i got it i got it when the wawa next to my house put in an electric charging Butter, station yeah. although i also have a charging station in my garage because when i built my house i knew i had a i had a prius and i wanted to have electric vehicle charging but um but now it's awesome and the wawa has a supercharger so that's awesome so we want to be there at linlock step with the government you want to bring in electric cars you want to make it cheaper you want to make it easier for people to bring in electric vehicles we got you we're putting up electric chargers all over so that's my other something i've been thinking about in in my full time job i work with two energy uh experts one who's done a lot of work in india around electric vehicles another who's done some work here in the us and we're all three of us are excited about the battery day coming up for tesla and see what elon musk rolls out but i think you're absolutely right on the battery technology because if you enable evs and i my personal view is that the first step the government should take is 
to encourage electrification of motorcycles and rickshaws because that can get you really the scale that you need in terms of battery tech. But it's a new monetization opportunity too, right? Because if you have solar and wind, you need storage. If you get people the battery storage through their vehicles, a lot of times that vehicle is parked, which means that it can become a battery storage solution for the home or for the office or whatever, so that when it's not in use, it's giving power in, especially during peak when people are at work and the sun is the hottest and ACs are on, that can provide the draw and it can recharge later on uh, when, when the demand comes down. And I think that, again, for someone like the way you described the, the Dosti system where you're sharing your power, you can do the same where, hey, I, I'm putting my car on this platform because I'm not using it right now. The software can make sure that it maintains a 50 mile capacity and doesn't fully drain my battery. But the rest of it I can sell because... I don't need it. And it's just energy that's free exactly. from the, from the sun or from the wind. Exactly. And here, here's a way to make it more affordable for everybody. Right. And to allow the person to monetize their asset. It's like an Uber. Why yeah. should your car be sitting idle 90% of the time when, you know, when you can. And yeah. I think it's, it's, it's fundamentally important, right? Like I think that was one of the, one of the things that, for example, the last government missed on its energy policy. Well, there were several, but the two biggest ones I thought was that, they invested in coal power projects beyond Thar, which meant that Pakistan now imports a ton of coal and actually transports it into this into Punjab from Karachi, which is a harebrained idea. I don't know who came up with that. Um, and two, when they were trying to encourage uh, auto manufacturers like Renault to come into Pakistan to break the lobby of the Japanese manufacturers, the auto policy was short-sighted because in 2016, you could already see the electric vehicle you know, boom coming and, and the transition that was occurring. And I think, again, they missed the boat there where the idea should have been, what can we do? And again, China is one of the leaders in that. CPEC could have, could have had an angle to it. Well, give us solar, give us wind, quality stuff, give us battery tech and give us EVs. And that is, I think, still an opportunity from a policymaking perspective to push on because it can radically transform society. And one last point before I let you share your comments on this, but you said like carbon emissions are going to go up 300% in the next 15 years. Pakistan cities are already choking under smog on a given day. Lahore is like the most polluted city last week. And so you need electrification uh, of the vehicle fleet to prevent this, this smog from becoming even more toxic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, so I want to I want to pivot to you know your experience as an entrepreneur and and sort of that the final segment of this discussion which has been fascinating is I get a lot of people asking like well you have these CEOs and entrepreneurs on um, what is their advice in terms of for someone who's young someone who's 18 21 thinking about doing their own business or wanting to be an entrepreneur but still very young like from your experience and your journey like what are some things that you would recommend people be mindful of or think about as they, as they think about becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I think there's a lot of great advice out there about how you really have to be um, focused on the user. You have to uh, fulfill a critical gap. You have to, um, you know, make sure that you're relentless in your pursuit. You have to adopt a, a mind, uh, like a, like a learning mindset. And all of those things are true, but, if you're a young person, 18 or 19, I'm gonna give you not just entrepreneurial 
entrepreneurial advice, but I'm going to give you life advice. The Japanese have a concept and it's called Ikigai. And this means uh, like your life's purpose or meaning, right? I think that when you're that age or at any age, I guess, you can focus on this concept. This concept means uh, this is a concept that, that Japanese um, people use to find their purpose. And what it is, is you, if you can visualize three concentric circles, the first one is what are you passionate about? What do you care about? What do you naturally gravitate towards? The second is uh, what are you good at? What are you, what are you talented at? What do you um, enjoy doing and you feel that you can improve at? And the third one is what do you find meaningful? If you can look at these as three different concentric circles and figure out where the overlap is, and you can find that if you're lucky enough to pursue that and find it, um, that can be your guiding star. That can be your North Star. And it, and it could be that you start a business and become an entrepreneur. It could be that you create your legacy in some other way. But whatever it is that drives you, that you are, that motivates you, and you're, you know, like you should pursue that. For me, um, I'm Pakistani American. I visited Pakistan a lot as a child. And I was really, uh, I'm really haunted by the poverty that I witnessed while I was there. I know that's not what all Pakistan is like, but as a kid growing up in the U.S., but visiting Pakistan really regularly from the age of two to 42, um, that was really jarring for me. And I really felt compelled to do something about it. And so the reason why I started in this field of energy access is because I was looking um, for a way to help people in Pakistan break the cycle of poverty uh, and I found that um, having access to basic infrastructure was the way for them to do it. Ha having access to um, proper education and healthcare are ways. I'm not driven or motivated by that. Those are important, but I wanted a more immediate result. Uh, I, and I felt that, um, as, you know, international development experts agree that having access to basic electricity is one of the quickest ways to change your position in life because it gives you meaningful economic opportunities and it does it fast. And that's what drew me to this field. That's, and, and like, so solving the energy access question for me became like a driving force. So I started working on this in 2001, coming to Pakistan, trying to understand this issue. I started my career with the World Bank. I worked in the Africa energy sector. I worked in the global environment facility. I did a stint with Grameen Shakti, which is the offshoot of Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, working on off-grid energy. And I just, I really, so why I believe so strongly in solar is because I do believe that this is the way, of, this is the way of the future and that this is the quickest, fastest, um, cheapest, most reliable and best way for Pakistanis to get electrified. But so that is my North Star. So every day when I wake up over the past, you know, over the past 10 years, I can't wait to work. I start my day at 530 in the morning and I can't wait to work. I love my team. Everybody's passionate. Everybody's motivated cool country Everybody. with ideas to, to contribute to the global consciousness. I mean, Pakistanis are capable of doing that, but they're just hamstrung by the fact that they can't rely that they're on their laptops or their phones to work. So if you, so my advice to you as an 18 or 19 year old or a young person with a business idea is 
Think about what is going to be your legacy to the world. What is going to be your legacy to your children? But what is going to be your legacy to the world? And you want it to be something really meaningful. I want my legacy to the world to be that I was part of a generation of people that didn't just talk about climate change. Find a solution and work towards it. And if you can find something that you really care about and you spend your time and your energy working towards it, you will get just so much, so much fulfillment, you know, like. I think that that's that's fantastic advice and and it is I think a lot especially in today's age where there's so many distractions people sort of lose focus of having a long-term vision or a north star to to guide them I had a follow-up question on that just that came to my mind like from your perspective do you think that having that north star um, is something that is a constant or can that also evolve over time where you start in one point and realize that maybe you know maybe you start with focusing on energy and electrification and then you start with whatever electrification and over the years you realize that there's climate change and things are changing so maybe clean energy is the future like should people also accept or think about the fact that that north star and how it guides you will also vary over the years or is that in your view a constant i mean the constant for me was um why don't people have basic electricity because that will make them infinitely more um, productive and improve the quality of their life they don't have it i'm going to work on that so my north star is energy access but um, it started out maybe focused on a small group of people low-income rural uh, villagers but that kept growing and growing as i realized that the problem actually cuts across a large swath of the population. And in fact, cuts across a large swath of the globe's population still. So maybe the way that I solved this problem changed, right? Now I reach a much larger group of people. We're working in rural, we're working in urban areas. We're working in cities. We're, use, we're doing much, much larger installations. We're working on massive pro projects with the government and with the World Bank. We're looking at markets in other countries now. How can we replicate SAMHSA web, like doing the, the solar configuration? And how can we replicate the Dossier project? And how can we license this technology and sell it in other countries? But the, the North Star, which is energy access across the globe, because why is still a quarter of the world's population living without this basic technology that exists and is affordable? You know, like that doesn't change, but you have to move with the times and figure out, is my current solution still relevant? Do I need to change it? Do I need to have like, do, does it need to include a, a broader demographic? Has the technology changed? Can I take advantage of something else? But like for me, fundamentally, what hasn't changed is the problem that I'm trying to solve and the reason why I'm trying to solve it. I want everybody to be able to contribute to the global consciousness, come up with technological innovations, and nobody should be shut out because of, um, because they're poor or because their 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 laptop doesn't work you know what i mean like that's just so so that hasn't changed but you do have to be very very adaptable in how you reach it and you have to constantly be asking yourself is this the best way to solve this problem i think i think you know the work you're doing is just so important from you know just economic development perspective particularly in pakistan but everywhere else around in the world because there are two major things that can empower people more than anything else one is electric access and you know you mentioned it 
But the example I always try to think about is like a woman who's working in a village, spending hours washing clothes by hand for her family. If you give her power in a washing machine, it will change the life, not only for her, but for her whole household. And that is a very powerful thing to have. But secondly, given, especially in emerging markets, the failures of governance in terms of education, healthcare, et cetera, if you give people power and give them a smartphone, you empower them to have access to a, a lot of information that they previously would not have. So you're, but you cannot have that without having access to, to power over time. So um, you, you're doing a great job with that. Um, last question before I let you go, what are two or three uh, interesting books that you recently read that you recommend listeners pick up and read? Oh my God. I love to read. I read a lot every day. I read a lot, hundreds of pages. Um, okay. So the three books that I've, um, the best books that I've read lately are, uh, there's a book called The New Silk Road by Peter Frankopan. He's a, a Byzantine scholar from Oxford. He also wrote another book that's awesome called The Silk Road. We all know yes. between um, China and Rome. And, and this was actually 3,000 miles and a series of routes. I'm like a, actually an amateur scholar on the Silk Road and I have- You're, a, a you're the second point. guest on, on this podcast who's recommended the new Silk Road. So clearly- No it's a, way. Yeah. It's really, it's really fantastic. It's all about um, uh, the rise of China, the reemergence of the Silk Road, this ancient route, and also, you know, the remaking of the, the new world order. Uh, but it's, it's a fascinating read. He's a very well versed um, in this in this uh, segment of the world, and and it's really interesting to see how the new Silk Road, like the, the this new initiative, will will impact Pakistan. That's something that we're all watching pretty closely, right? So um, that's a really great read. Um, another book that I read uh, recently that I really liked is a book. Um, I think he's called Dan. I'll get you exact his exact name. Dan Albert, and it's um, about. Uh, it's called "Are We There Yet?" and it's all about the history of um, the history and future of the U.S. automobile industry. Um, it talks a lot about uh, sort of uh, how Americans associate the car with freedom, their love of driving, but also how the automobile industry really promoted and lobbied for the building, uh, the investment and building of a national highway system in the U.S. instead of, instead of um, investing into public transportation mm -hmm. and how that really changed the landscape of America and, you know, sort of like is responsible for why cities are set up the way that they are and why public transportation would now be incredibly difficult to implement in the U.S. But it also talks about the future of cars and uh, about how the millennials, and the generations after are not as interested in automobiles. They're more interested in, um, in ride sharing, in Ubers, in Lyft, um, in driverless cars. They're not getting their driver's licenses at the same rates as people in previous generations did. And why is that? And so uh, it touches on the sharing economy, which as you know, from the Dosi project, I'm really interested in. And so th that's really interesting because it just talks about what is the future going to look like. And I feel like, um, not, not that everything that happens in the U.S., there's a direct correlation between that and what may unfold in other parts of the world. But I do think it's interesting to see what the trajectory is of different sectors in the U.S. because it could be an indication of what's to come down the line in, in other countries. Uh, and then um, what's another interesting book that I've read lately? Well, I, I read this really good book uh, called For All the Tea in China, which is about the first industrial espionage case mm. of um, how uh, how 
tea was stolen by the British. Um, out of Assam, they walked over the border and, and snuck some out. Thank you so much for, you, for your time. This was wonderful having you on. And, you know, uh, you're on a mission to eliminate the grid in Pakistan. And as someone who wants to see that happen, I wish you all the best um, and, and keep up the excellent work. And we'll have you on soon when, you know, hopefully that vision is closer to completion or at least there's indications that, you know, some, some of the things that you're working on are having uh, even more of an impact than what they are today. So wish you all the best.